Not only are words the most powerful thing to heal the brain, they're also one of the most powerful things that hurts brains. How do we start to use language to re-engage our workforce? We can begin to learn the difference between transactional instrumental language mm -hmm. and the kind of language that brings us to life. The left hemisphere brings us the fragmented view. The left hemisphere has a sense of self based on success or failure. This is where imposter syndrome must exist. This is exactly where imposter syndrome exists. Holy cannoli. I'm Sarah Payton, and my definition of belonging is when you know that what you have to say is not just going to be allowed, but it actually is wanted. Oh my goodness, Sarah Payton, you are sitting in the studio. You came all the way from Vancouver, Washington. You are here to spend hopefully 469 billion hours with me. <laughs> <laughs> what time is your flight? <laughs> I am just so excited, so elated that you're here. I'm very happy. Thank you for making the trip to, down. Thank you for being here. Thank you for always being so supportive, so wonderful, and my co-conspirator and co-creator and so many things. The feeling is absolutely mutual. Sarah, you are the author of Your Resident Self, a book that I recommend every chance I get. Mm. It also comes with a workbook. Yes. And you have just completed, I believe, your fourth book yes. with Roxy Manning on uh, anti-racism and self-compassion. Mm -hmm. So we are going to cover all of those things, plus oh, wonderful. so much more. We're going to talk about um, neurochemistry, the brain, and uh, most importantly, we're going to talk about changing the world through re resonant language. Yay! Yeah. It is, it is so good to have you here. I, I think we should start with the brain. And uh, I'd, love to, I'd love to hear what your thoughts are about the brain, Ian McGilchrist's work, and all the things brain-related. Well, I love brains. <laughs> <laughs> when I was a little girl, I already knew that my family was, I didn't know that my family was having a difficult time. I knew I was having a difficult time mm. from pretty early on. And I remember that I was like 12 years old and I found a, was 12 years old, I would have been, 19, that would have been 1974, I found a, a, a psychology textbook. And so I was like, okay, the psychology textbook is going to tell me why I'm having such a hard time. At 12, you had this conversation with yourself? Yes. And um, the psychology textbook said that this was 1974, so the textbook would have been published in 68 or 70 by the time a little girl in Fairbanks, Alaska got a hold of it. And it said that your brain was set in stone after three years old, that, uh, that whatever happened to you before the three years old, you just had to live with after that. It almost brings tears to my eyes because oh it was such a devastating discovery. I had so much hope for this psychology textbook which is such an interesting kind of, like it was a, it was a, a relational longing yeah. in an instrumental world. Wow. So I was like, okay, I just have to knuckle down and figure out how to live with, uh, with the brain I've got from the first three years of my life, which I don't even know anything about, but obviously they weren't good. And so I... And so, you know, I tried to figure out how the heck to live with this brain. And, and what I discovered was that, uh, was that drugs would really help. <laughs> At the age of 12, I started smoking marijuana every day after school. And it was such a relief because it was the first time in my life that I wasn't fighting like, cats and dogs with my mother every moment that we were together. So I could just let her say the things that she was saying, which were scary 
difficult, mm. basically verbal abuse things. Mm. And I could just not scream at her and just let her be who she was. Now she had, we'll be talking about transgenerational trauma. She had tremendous gen yeah. transgenerational trauma and childhood trauma. And it, and it impacted her quite intensely. Yeah. So marijuana was such a relief. Oh, my goodness. Wow. Yeah. And it wasn't until I went away, she sent me on a foreign exchange program, and I spent a year away from her. Where, where, where'd where you go? Went to Norway. Okay. And getting away from her was like a, the, the hugest gift. I don't know how people get this gift nowadays in a world filled with cell phones and Mm. And uh, instant messaging. Uh, so but, there was a, there was no contact, or right? there was limited contact. Limited contact, yeah. yeah. So that was an absolute blessing for me to get to to begin to be able to be who I was without having to be stoned, and without having to to try to manage my mom's disorganization. Wow. So, fast forward to like age, I don't know, my son was seven. He was born in, in, uh, in 1998, so 2005, I'm like 43 years old. Mm. And, um, and I stumble into first nonviolent communication right. with Marshall Rosenberg. Yeah. And then when nonviolent communication really worked for me and allowed me to experience neural change mm -hmm. with this brain, for the first time in those 43 years, I was like, what the heck happened? And, and speak to that change. What was that change? Well, that change was actually extraordinary and has very much to do with our theme for our talking. It was that my my beloved husband had we my my husband and I we wanted a child and in in the meantime of wanting a child we stumbled across this kid who was living on the street and my husband was not happy about this neither was I and my husband went downstairs in this one bedroom house that we had and he built a bedroom in the bottom of this house for this kid. Oh my God, I'm gonna start crying. Yeah. Yeah. And so I and so we said to the kid who we, we loved this kid and he loved us. We were, we were like, You wanna come live with us? He said, I can't take charity. And I said, Okay. Kind of like, okay. And then my husband went off to Russia. He was working for a company that worked in Russia at the time. He went off to Russia for four weeks. I said to the kid, Hey. My husband's going to be gone for four weeks. I'm kind of scared when I'm alone, you know, just come for these four weeks. You can just be kind of taking care of me. It won't be like the charity thing. It'll be like you helping me. This was the narrative that you created for yourself to share with us. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The young fellow. Yeah. And he came. His, name's, his name was Ben. Um, mm. And he came and he lived with us. Uh, oh, he he moved his goodness. stuff into the room and he came upstairs and he said, Sarah, can I really leave my stuff in that room? And I said, yeah, I said quietly while I was jumping and turning <laughs> cartwheels in my in my head. And um and so but the problem was I couldn't hug him. I would I would it was like hitting a concrete block. I would turn to stone. You would turn to stone, I not, would not turn him. To stone. No, oh, he wow. needed hugs. He was right. a lovely hugger. No, oh, my wow. body would just freeze. I was like, this is not good. And and so I was at a nonviolent communication workshop, and they said, let's do an empathy circle. And I was like, I, I don't know what an empathy circle is, but I've already memorized Marshall Rosenberg completely by heart by listening to his audio tapes like 14 times. So this is something different than listening to Marshall for the 15th time. I'll go to this empathy circle. So I went, <laughs> <laughs> and the lady said, Choose something that you think that's really hard for you, and we'll do guesses. She said, 
And so I... Oh, my goodness. Yeah. You experienced empathy. I did. For the, for, for the first for, time. For the first time. Always before then, I had gotten a lot of unsolicited advice, which we will also talk about. <laughs> <laughs> and the advice would range from things like, just don't think about it, or you're going to be okay, or he'll know you love him anyway, to... What are you doing? Taking a homeless kid into your house, he's going to murder you in your beds. Mm. None of these things were helpful. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> For sure. So people started doing feelings and needs guesses. And as, as I listened to the feelings and needs guesses, I had this experience of like being a little boat in the storm of my own brain. And I would go up to the top of the wave and I would hear a feelings and needs guess and I could orient myself in the direction of truth, and then I would go back down into the emotional storm, and then I would come up and I would hear a feelings and needs guess, and I could orient myself again. And it was like I was going towards truth with the feelings and needs guesses. And I actually had a flashback, which is part of our work with trauma. I had a flashback of being about three years old and reaching out to hug my mom. Oh my goodness. And feeling her body contract against being hugged and thinking oh I must, I, I, I should never hug again. And, and once that came out as the, what was going on, then what happened was I could hug my son. I went home and I could hug my son. There was no more concrete mm. block. There was no more, there was more, no more turning to stone. Mm. And so I was like, what the heck just happened? Yeah. <laughs> and that moment is the start of everything wow. else. It's the start of everything I've written. It's the start of everything that we, we're going to be talking about. Was, I was like, what happened? How did words change not only my body, which had turned to stone, but yeah. my brain, which the science textbook in 1970 had told me was going to be set in stone forever? You and I have been talking for many moons now, many years, and today in the car as we were driving over, um, you said something that I've been saying for the last six months, which, which is that song, Sticks and Stones Can Break Your Bones, But Words Can Never Hurt You, yeah. we both think is a crock of <laughs> many things, a crock yeah. of shit. <laughs> yeah. Because as we both know, um, words are at the moment the most powerful tool that we have that can help change the brain. Not only. Mm. Do our words the most powerful thing to heal the brain? They're also the most one of the most powerful things that hurts brains. For sure. Can you give us an example of what a feelings and needs guess might look like? <laughs> Tough to. Um, or, or I should say sound like. <laughs> um, feelings and needs guesses are a, a, a wonderful component of nonviolent communication where you make a wondering about what the emotion is that somebody is, is experiencing, mm -hmm. what is their feeling, and then you give it context. Mm -hmm. The beautiful work of Matthew Lieberman at UCLA mm. shows that when we name feelings, then the Electrical activity in the amygdala, which is this wonderful tiny little organ in the human brain that's a sort of clearinghouse for emotions, actually falls by half. Oh, wow. But after he discovered this, he thought, why aren't, why, why aren't people walking around naming feelings all the time? And so he asked a group of people. That, that, that's such a great question. <laughs> I know, it that's is. That's such a great question. <laughs> So he said to a group of people, if I told you that you were going to feel better by naming feelings, would you believe me? And they all said, no. Are you kidding yeah. me? Yeah. <laughs> so it's counterintuitive. Right. But I think what's happening is that we're so used to managing our emotional state by repressing it mm -hmm. that once we start to open the door, our brain is calming but our body is become, we're becoming more aware of our body's intensity. Yes. Oh, nicely said. Yeah. And that's uncomfortable. Right. So what nonviolent communication does is it puts every feeling into a context of what, what we long for, 
of what's important to us. Yeah. And so a feelings and needs guest would be like, Rajkumari, why are you so excited to have this conversation with me, your friend and collaborator? Because you love discovery and emergence and not knowing where things will go and getting to be in the juicy experience of discovery. <laughs> so, you know, I just want to say that Sarah is a master at this, clearly. And, and, and for those of you who are watching, you, my face just lit up. So the answer is yes. Um, you know, a great example that I can, you know, I, I had this experience exactly um, many years ago. I was coaching uh, a head of HR at a company everyone knows. And about a couple months into our coaching, she invited me to come meet with the CEO and her 12 direct reports. And um, the CEO at some moment asked me a question about trust. So I got really excited and I jumped up. There was a whiteboard. So I started whiteboarding because I always have to use a whiteboard if it's in the room. And so my back was, you know, facing everyone as I was whiteboarding, of course. And she yelled out, wow, your, your handwriting is really shitty. <laughs> exactly. And so in that moment, I took a deep breath to self-regulate, as you are doing now. I turned around and faced everybody. And then I moved into a non-verbal communication. So I extended my arm to show that I wanted to create a bridge and build connection in this moment of tension and whatever conflict. Um, and I said, awesome. Tell me what's going on. And so she started to say, I'm feeling frustrated. And so that was a data point, right? That's a feeling. It let me know immediately where her nervous system was, and we'll get into that. Yeah. And then she talked for a while, you know. She said, I don't want to waste your time. I don't want to waste our time. I really want people to get the most out of this meeting. So she went on for a little bit, and I said, ah, so you're wanting a sense of clarity. And the whole energy in the room shifted, hers and everyone else's. Mm -hmm. It was really interesting. So in the context of a work, meeting, empathy, you called it feelings and needs guessing, can be transformational. Yes. Yes. I was recently uh, out in New Jersey working with a company that uses resonance for everything, and they came into learning about relational neuroscience mm. through the doorway of nonviolent communication. And one of the wonderful women who was interviewing with me arrived with her feelings and needs sheet. Aww. Yes. That's so cute. She said, I'm anxious about this interview. And so I know that since I have my feelings and needs sheet here, I may not even get a chance to look at it. But I know that my context, my need, is right here for my anxiety. And so I know that I make sense. And this is just such a beautiful beautiful description of the way that not only knowing our feelings but knowing the context of our feelings helps us to feel sane and grounded and balanced and yeah. regulated in a difficult world where somebody could yell something like you have shitty handwriting in right. the middle of a meeting in the middle of a meeting when your back is you know, when you're in a vulnerable state of having your back turned to everybody. Not only that, but there's a vulnerable state of sharing. Yeah. Like there you are with the whiteboard. You're excited about something. Really and good point. That is the biggest crash that we'll have. Our shame crashes with this huge yeah. spike of cortisol. Right. When someone interrupts our excitement yeah. or our delight or our positive feelings. Yeah. There's, there's a... a as as I often and so often want to do, go in a million different directions, I want to go down, you know, um, supporting black and brown communities, right? And how um, that is impacted when we, um, in the midst of them sharing whatever it is that they're sharing, interrupt them. That can be incredibly triggering. Yes. Right. And it's constant. And that it's kind constant. of interruption. Yeah. Always that message. If you're sharing about privilege, you're never doing it right. Yeah. You're always Oof. there. People always want to correct whoever is sharing about privilege to tell them that if only they would share it differently, right. then it would become somehow palatable and digestible, right. which is a huge misconception and, of course, leads to continual crashes. Right. 
I remember you saying so long ago, experiencing shame is the biggest cortisol dump our bodies can can yes. can experience. Yes, right? well, yeah, it's the. Um, I'd like to, you know, for for those for those who are part of the audience that is, you know, with us today in this episode. Um, and may not have had the opportunity to hear us speak for 14 hours on the <laughs> ROI of EQ podcast that we put together. What is relational science? Relational neuroscience is the, dis- is the investigation and exploration of how our brains impact each other. Yeah, It's a field of research that started in the 1990s when universities were getting grants to get the big MRI machine, FMRI oh, machines. Oh, wow. And social and cognitive neuroscientists were beginning to think, how can I use this FMRI machine to look at the human brain and discover w- how we impact each other? Talk a little bit about James Cohen's work. That's exactly who I was thinking of. Love it. Yes, because what his work does is he has worked very hard to find ways to show, to explore with the fMRI machine mm-hmm. how the presence of another person supports us yeah, or how the absence of other people makes things harder for us. Mm-hmm. So he's done a variety of studies about this, one of which is where he put somebody into a, an fMRI machine and had them, uh, ha- had them imagine pain and then had them have somebody actually physically with them who, uh, who was there. In his study, he did spouses, strangers, and nobody. Right, and it showed such a difference in the brain. It was such a difference in the brain for how the brain responded. Yeah, to the stimulus. The pain centers in the brain lit up when there was nobody in the room. Yeah, that the pain centers lit up when there was a friend in the room, but it was diminished significantly. Exactly, and that it did not light up. I want to repeat that. It did not light up when there was someone you loved in the room yeah. or when someone yeah. they loved in the room. Yeah. The, the different languages in which we speak, the different ways in which we communicate with each other, the hemispheres have different languages. The left hemisphere speaks transactionally. The right hemisphere speaks relationally. So much of how we show up and invite performance is through the language that we use. Gallup's current data point around disengaged workforce is 68%. McKinsey's data point is 67.7%. According to McKinsey in their report, um, across 15 different countries, um, people are disengaged because of toxic workplace behavior and are wanting to leave the next three to six months. This is over 15 different countries. How do we start to use language to re-engage our workforce? What a wonderful question. Because it's kind of two different questions in a way. Mm. One of the questions is about making the workplace less toxic. Yeah. And the other question is about moving from neutrality to engagement. So there are kind of two different elements here. Which one interests you most to start with? The second one. (laughs) To move from neutrality to engagement. Yeah. Mm. Well, one of the things that we can do is we can begin to learn the difference between transactional instrumental language Mm -hmm. and the kind of language that brings us to life. Mm. And sometimes people think being brought to life isn't the most appropriate thing for workplaces, but heck, we're spending so much of our lifetimes in the workplace, we might as well be alive there. We might as well be engaged. Our bodies might as well have the opportunity to, to crack up and experience 
excitement and mm. and satisfaction and to celebrate wins and accomplishments. So there's um, there's a kind of a whole world of understanding of the difference between transactional language, the language we use to get things done, and resonant language, which brings the right hemisphere to life. So some of the things that bring the right hemisphere to life are feelings and needs words. Those bring the right hemisphere to life. Other things that bring the right hemisphere to life are metaphors, the use of metaphors, especially fresh metaphors, Mm. new metaphors. When we... When we use a metaphor, for example, to um, to speak about what we want for a company, like if we want if we want the company to grow, mm. what kind of growth do we want? Mm. How do we tie what we want into mission? So, if a company's mission is to um, to to serve in some way, which most companies have a mission to serve in some way, yeah. then what are the metaphors for f- for success? I mean, is it a racetrack where everybody's getting to the finish line, or is it a or uh, is it a racetrack where one car is outstripping all of the other cars and making it to the to the finish line first? Yeah. Is uh, are we? On a rocket ship headed for unknown territory, mm-hmm. are we um, brave explorers along a mountain trail? Mm. What are the metaphors for this company for this mission that invite engagement and participation, and for people to see themselves as part of something? Mm-hmm. This this actually is reminding me of Salesforce. <laughs> Salesforce did a whole thing about trailheads. Mm. And and how you're on this journey to explore yourself and learn new things, and you go on this little quest. <laughs> I thought that that's so interesting. Yeah, it's beautiful, fun, inviting adventures metaphors. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the metaphors also create, you know, are we doing it alone or are we doing it as a yeah. community? Right. Our metaphors tell us so much. So being aware of our metaphors is part of resonant language. Being able to make impossible dream guesses for each other mm. is part of the resonant language that can bring a work life to life. Mm. It, being aware of ourselves as humans within a working environment that we have body sensations, that we have feelings, yeah. that we have longings, that we have dreams. Yeah. All of these things kind of inviting our humanness into the... I was just going to say yeah. Our indignity. Yeah, right. yeah. What's an example of an impossible dream in the workplace? Well, um, this is a wonderful question because it takes us towards something we promised to talk about, which was unsolicited advice. Mm. So let's say we have... Uh, the person in the next desk to ours is having trouble. They're struggling with a sense of meaning. They've been asked to do some work tasks that are kind of impossible given the amount of time they've been given to complete them in. Um, You know, unsolicited advice would be something like, well, you could work through lunch. So could you. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and even, you know, there might be even like some nod to relationality. I can bring you back some takeout from the Aww. restaurant. That I do. <laughs> That's sweet. There's, a, there's a, an attempt to repair from the harm caused. <laughs> Which most of us don't know, but unsolicited advice creates a, fl- a, a, a spike of cortisol. That's incredible. Just like shame does. That's incredible. So, so what happens if we're, instead of, so what happens for people is that they hear someone's pain and they want to fix it. Yeah. They want to contribute. 
Yeah. They want to help the person who's having a difficult time. It's hard for me that my seatmate is, is discouraged and feeling hopeless. I don't want my, my next-door neighbor to feel discouraged and hopeless. Maybe if I solve their problem for them, they will no longer feel discouraged and hopeless. That's where the unsolicited advice comes from. But if we got a little more nuanced, isn't it actually stemming from the person having the discomfort? Because you said, it's hard for me that this person has to work through lunch. So if... It's I, hard for me that they're discouraged. Oh, they're discouraged, right. <laughs> Might not be hard for me that they <laughs> have to work through, through lunch. lunch. <laughs> okay, thank you. Right? But isn't, if, if I allowed myself to be in that discomfort, then I could show up more resonantly. Yes, absolutely. So, 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 so this takes me back to to that scene in Inside Out with joy and sadness and bing yeah, bong. Yeah, I love right? that scene. And I know it's the best scene ever. And, and, and bing bong has collapsed because the rocket's gone, right? And, and so joy literally comes in and says, hey, it's going to be okay. We can fix this. Clearly I've watched this scene uh, way too many <laughs> times because I'm even in her tonality of it. <laughs> but that's unsolic unsolicited advice. Yeah. It's dismissing his experience. Yeah. Right? It's causing a cortisol spike because he actually stays collapsed. Yeah. She's doing this because she's uncomfortable because she has her own OKR of getting to the train station. Well, it might be because she's uncomfortable. But interestingly enough, it might be out of love. Let me tell you a story from a workshop. Oh, wow. I was doing a workshop in London. Oh, wow. And I said, um, do any of you have a difficult time? I was teaching nonviolent communication. And I said, do, do any of you have a difficult time making feelings and needs guesses for people? Mm -hmm. Have you received feedback that your feelings and needs, that you, that you give advice when people don't want you to give advice? And a fellow raised his hand. He said, me, definitely me. And I said, okay, let's have the person next to you say, I feel so sad. So the woman next to him said, I feel so sad. And he said, what can we do about that? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, okay, let's check if you have an unconscious contract. An agreement with yourself to never leave anyone feeling sad. Oh, wow. And he said, oh, absolutely. I will never let anyone, I will never leave anyone feeling sad so that no one is ever alone with their sadness, no matter the cost to myself and others, of course. And I said, do you want to keep that? Is that now that we know what that contract is, do you want to hang on to it? And he said, well, no, because then I can't do empathy. I can't do feelings and needs guesses for people because I'm so hooked into trying to make them not be how they are. So he, I said, go ahead and say this aloud. I release you from this contract. I revoke this vow. And instead, I give you my blessing too. And he said, oh, I give myself the blessing to just really be, be warmly curious with people instead Aww. of wanting to change them. And I said, okay. Now that you've released the contract, let's see what this, what happens when your seatmate says to you, I feel so sad. So she did it again. She said, I feel so sad. And he said, oh, would you tell me the flavors of your sadness? Holy shit. <laughs> it was the most beautiful, beautiful moment. So this is an example. I mean, that was wow. love. And I think we tend in our world, as part of the instrumental transactional part of yeah. being alive, we tend to think of ourselves as instrumental beings instead of thinking of ourselves as profoundly relational yeah. beings. Yeah, 100%. This takes, you know, I, I, I want to unpack um, unconscious contracts at some point in our conversation, but you're talking specific, specifically about generational trauma. Yeah. And epigenetics. Yeah. You know, I often say that we carry the titration of mindsets. Yes. Right. Um, 
and I, I really need to start saying that we carry the titration of mindsets and our heart beliefs. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Um, I have a dear friend who's an incredible psychic, and she talks about how um, we carry our beliefs um, that what's truly important to us in our hearts. Mm. That's really sweet. Mm-hmm. So Ian McGilchrist. Ian McGilchrist. Has written a very tiny book called The Matter <laughs> with Things that is only 1,500 pages long. <laughs> and uh, he took 10 years to write this book. He read over 6,000, close to 7,000 peer reviews. Um, I have been obsessively listening to him since you mentioned him many moons ago. His first book was Master and His Emissary. Talk a little bit about Ian, his work, and the hemispheres. Well, Ian McGilchrist is a philosopher. Mm. He's, he also, like me, is not a neuroscientist, but writes about neuroscience and deeply reads neuroscience and thinks about neuroscience and how it impacts the human condition. Mm. And one of the areas of his interest is the history of the research into brain lateralization. Mm. What does the left hemisphere of the brain mostly control and direct for humans? And what does the right hemisphere of the brain mostly control and direct for humans? So it's not simple research to get your brain around because it turns out that both hemispheres are always contributing all the time. Mm. So the oversimplification that people can fall into yes. is they can fall into this oversimplification of believing that they're just a left hemisphere person or yep. just a right hemisphere exactly. person. And no one is. Right. Which is really, in a way, evidenced by this story of this man who was so instrumental mm. in his response to his seatmate telling him that she was sad. But when we looked deeply, it wasn't, it wasn't that he was a left hemisphere guy. Right. It was that he was being driven by his love out of relationship. Or, or, or even possibly trauma. Exactly. Yeah. 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 And so, so no one is either all instrumental brain or all relational brain or resonant brain. I want to quickly deviate here and go down a very uh, dangerous path. Yes. What about um, that book? What's it called? Mars versus Venus, and oh. men, you know, male brain versus female brain. Oh, well, the the author that I most enjoy who writes about gender is Cordelia Fine. She's an Australian writer, and I wish she would write a book a year, but she doesn't. (laughs) 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 But her most recent book was Testosterone Rex, which was all about the misconceptions that we have about testosterone. Mm. But the first book that she wrote was all about, it was like a big critique of the left, of the, sorry, of the women brain, ma- yeah. ma- female brain, male brain. Right. Um, for example, one of the most famous books that's been written about the female brain, um, if you go into the research articles that are cited, for example, this is the type of research that gets cited. The person who wrote the book cited a piece of research about three male salmon brains in order to buttress their point about human female brains. So it's pretty, you know, it's pretty dicey. It's not really science when we start to talk about male and female brains being significantly different. I am in shock. (laughs) (laughs) I don't even think I have any comment other than to simply say that I am in shock. But please continue. (laughs) Well, <laughs> well, one of the things about uh, male and female brains and the idea about them is that, first of all, our culture is like a juggernaut. It's like a, a giant steamroller bearing down on all of us and kind of 
steamrolling us into flat paper dolls of of self mm-hmm. that are supposed to be some particular gender, mm-hmm. a male gender or a female gender. Mm-hmm. And and it starts so early, you know. <laughs> it starts prenatally. The yeah. way as soon as people find out what gender their baby is, yeah. then their way they use language about totally. the baby changes and totally. what they expect the baby to be like changes. And so we're living in a culture that has ideas that we try to find ourselves within. I mean, you know, the whole men are from Mars, women are from That's Venus. The book. That's the book. Yeah, yeah. The, that whole that whole trajectory of exploration right. was not an effort to find ourselves in relationship to how our brains actually are. It was an effort to find ourselves in relationship to how the culture makes us be. Mm. Um, and mm. uh, when you look at male brains and female brains, they're really not dissimilar. Yeah, they're, they're, yeah. There's there's not there's very tiny tiny differences. Mm. But they aren't big enough to be significant in any particular way. I mean, I, I want to kind of even pull the thread on this and get controversial because, you know, part of my thinking has always been about if we are so hyper-conditioned as humans, A, B, we carry the traits, tragedies, and traumas, according to Rachel Yehuda, 210 yes. years, but Reza Menachem says it's up to 490 years, right? So we're carrying these titrations of mindsets, which are titrations of conditioning, which are these neurochemical petri dishes that we're walking inside, or, you know, that we're, that we're carrying around with ourselves, right? And we don't realize that we can be any different because these, these neurochemical mindsets are creating our identity. They're shaping our identity. And if we are looking at the way we acculturate society and we are deeming women to be the ones who are empathic and men are not, that in and of itself is complete conditioning. It is. And I loved the piece of research that Cordelia Fine references where they had a group of men and a group of women, and they had the women do empathy, and they had the men do empathy, and the women did much better than the men. And then they did the research again, and they told the men that they would pay them for doing the empathy, and once they told them that, the men did just as well as the women. <laughs> so there's like a whole, like, what do we value? How do we place our attention? Money tells us how to place our attention, especially if we're born into male, into bodies that are assigned male at birth. This is belonging. Yeah. But this is belonging. Yes. Right? And, yes. and, and, and conforming. And, and so mm-hmm. much of our society is based on conforming. And, and 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 fitting into slots yeah. and right like you you belong here if you show up in these yes, ways. Yes, yes, it's so conditional. Right. Yeah. And this is what the biology of belonging bootcamp addresses and mm-hmm. and really kind of uncovers and surfaces is. Let's look at the permissions of belonging that are the unconscious contracts yes. that you have within you and how those are preventing, impeding, or propelling you forward. Yes. Yes. Right? So, what about? I think you mentioned once forever ago that there are humans on the planet that only have one hemisphere? Yes, of course there are. People who have been in car accidents, people who've had traumas, people who are born with birth defects. We can be born with just one hemisphere, absolutely. And that hemisphere figures out a way to do all the things for us. Yes, yes. Yeah. That is, that is so fascinating. Yeah, we are so, meant to carry out both of these kinds of attention, to be able to carry out both of the kinds of attention that are typified by the two different, these two different brains, the instrumental brain and the, mm. re- and the relational brain or the resonant brain. We are, uh, when we are bringing our attention through the left hemisphere lens, we are looking at the world as a big to-do list. Mm-hmm. When we're bringing our attention through the more right hemisphere relational lens, we're looking at the hemisphere, I mean, we're looking at the world mm-hmm. as a mystery. Yeah. And we're looking at each other as infinite beings. Yeah. And it's only, it's only when we can bring together our to-do list and, and have it be 
Um, I love that. Yeah, have it be held by and directed by our sense of each other as infinite beings, and of course the planet also as a being, then all of a sudden we can begin to direct our activities and our to-do lists in ways that are more relational. Mm -hmm. So the question is always about integration, about both both kinds of attention being used to serve rather than to destroy. In one of the interviews with Ian McGilchrist I was listening to, it was about an hour and a half long, he talks about how the left hemisphere brings us the fragmented view and the right hemisphere brings us the holistic view. He also talks about how um, the left hemisphere is far more delusional than the right hemisphere. I thought that was absolutely fascinating, and I, I, I would love to dig into that a little bit more. Do you have anything that you want to share about? Yes, that, that both of those ideas take us in different directions. Um, the, in the fragmentation, we, we take the world apart, yeah. but we don't really put it back together as a whole, which means that we can be extractive with our planet instead of being thoughtful about the consequences of our actions. Welcome to patriarchy. future. <laughs> Welcome to sexism. Welcome to white supremacy. Indeed. And if we think about the delusion, I love this about the left hemisphere. It just makes me laugh. I mean, it's, you know, tragic in every way, but it also makes me laugh. <laughs> I once told my producer that we live in a planet that's just miserably magical. <laughs> So this is what I find so funny about human brains. It's tragic, but it's also funny. The left hemisphere can't error check. All it can do is go go straight ahead without error checking. If you've ever gotten into that frame of mind where you you're lost mm-hmm. and you want to get to the place that you're going, but you don't want to turn around and backtrack. You just want to keep driving forward and without looking at the map and you just want to get there and you don't want to turn around and retrace your steps. That's like the epitome of the left hemisphere. It has this idea that if it just keeps going, it will get where it's supposed to go. So, so, but let's back up a second because you, 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 you started this by saying that the left hemisphere cannot integrate new information. Yeah. The left hemisphere does not have the neural structure that would allow it to be able to mourn. I remember you saying, and please correct me if I'm remembering incorrectly, that the left hemisphere integrates new information by blaming. Yes, that's its only capacity to integrate new information. And I want to be, and we're going to get into the circuits in just a moment and to talk about Yock's yeah. work, but, and, and this secretes dopamine, so it feels good. That's right. That's right, just going on, never retracing our steps, just working harder. It's that that whole ability to do what's so important in life and in business of do, plan, do, check, adjust. Mm. The left hemisphere can plan and do, but it can't check and it can't adjust. Oh my goodness, that's such a great point. So... This wow. is its delusionality, wow. is that when it plans and does, it's doing everything it needs to do. And indeed, that's all it has that it can do. It's true if we're just in our instrumental and transactional brain. Wow. So that's, that's a bit of the, about the delusionality of the left hemisphere, is it thinks it's got everything. Oh, I thought you said. I thought you were going to say it thinks it's God. It does. It does think it's. It does think it's God. That's a very good point. That's what the left hemisphere thinks. Well, so this brings me to another thing that I recently read that you stated, and then caused me to think that I had misunderstood something from about ten years ago. The left hemisphere doesn't have a sense of self. The left hemisphere has. Um, a sense of self based on success or failure and accomplishment and official degrees and certifications. But this is where imposter syndrome must 
exist. Then. I believe this is exactly where imposter syndrome exists. Holy cannoli. Yeah. I am the vice president of marketing. There, I know that's true, but I don't feel competent. I don't feel full. And I also know with my soul that I am actually, that is not the description of who I am as a fullness. Right. So when I step into being the vice president of marketing and I'm not able to bring my full self yeah. with me, mm-hmm. then there's a, there's a perennial sense of being hollow and incomplete. And how that hollowness and incompleteness is resolved or filled or healed or repaired is the care circuit. And the right hemisphere. And the right hemisphere. The so, juiciness yeah. of authenticity. I, I want to go back to, we were talking about the, the, the pieces of resonant language. We talked yes. about impossible dream. We talked about metaphors. We talked about uh, empathic guesses. But we haven't talked about my favorite one, Sarah. And I'm actually kind of like hurt about that. Which one is your favorite? Well, fucking swearing, obviously. <laughs> I love swearing. Talk about the science of swearing well, and how important it is. <laughs> my most favorite research article that I read in 2022 was that when researchers are teaching chimps sign language. Yes, I just recently read this yes, one. And they teach them the sign language for poo. Yes, totally. The chimps immediately begin to use the word, the sign language poo to swear. This is mind-blowing. I know. Isn't it cool? It's, I just read this like a week ago. Yeah. It made me so happy. It still makes me happy. Whenever I run across research that shows how profoundly <laughs> we are connected to the animal world, I just feel so happy. Aww. So here we are with our propensity for swearing, which is very much a primate yeah. thing. Yeah, and it has to so do good. with being social animals. Yeah. And it has to do with body parts. And it has to do with whatever's just like a little bit prohibited or trying to be taken, uh, to, to trying to be taken uh, and, and made a part. I mean, I think it's sort of profound that the chimps who are being taught sign language are also being diapered mm. so that their poo is being contained. Whereas a wild chimp, I don't know if they think about their poo being contained. I mean, I don't know. It would be interesting if they were being taught sign mm. language. And So anyway, who knows? That wasn't part of the research article, but it's an interesting thing to think about. What do we make prohibited? Yeah. And then what do we use as swear words? So in the U.S., the swear words, the the most intense swear words are a combination of uh, the sacred and the -hmm. the bodily. So holy fuck Mm -hmm. is a fabulous swear word Mm -hmm. in the United States. In Norway... Mm The most popular and intense swear word is fee-fawn, which is shame the devil. This is hilarious. I know. But this and is hilarious. Norway, you know, has been under the rule of very strict Lutheranism for 200 or 300 years or longer. And so there we have, like, what's prohibited? The devil is prohibited, so it's the swear word. It's, so here we are. These funny humans. But what happens with swear words is that they actually decrease cortisol and they decrease pain and they decrease effort. Now, if you're swearing every sentence, if you're using the word fuck in every sentence, you don't get the same benefit. Mm. As so, if so plan accordingly. Time plan it well. accordingly. That's right. <laughs> mm, that's right. <laughs> Ration yourself. In your everyday language, so that when you stub your toe and you say "fuck," then there's a decrease in pain. This is so interesting. I'm, I'm, I'm as we're having this conversation, I'm being tr- teleported back to my childhood and growing up in Quebec, Canada, and you know, constantly hearing "God, it's the tabernacle de Christi," you know, <laughs> and, uh, and I loved it, you know, and uh, and I just now completely swore uh, on this show in you know in Joal. But here we go. So. 
we still have so much to talk about. We have two more episodes we're going to do, several more hours of conversation, which I'm so elated about. I want to close this episode by talking about um, Yak Pongsep's work. He, his body of research means so much to me, so much to you. We have collaborated on this project very intensely. Um, and, and so as we end this episode, talk a little bit about Yak's work, affective nurse, neuroscience, and his, specifically his body of research around um, the circuits of emotion and motivation. Yak Pongsep is, I consider, one of the major researchers of the 20th century. Wow. And his work, it was the development of basic emotions theory, mm. which is all about there being different tracts of brain tissue that are used depending on what emotional or motivational state we're in. So if we're, I think of it as like the um, London Underground map mm -hmm. with the different colors for the different lines, like the Piccadilly line. And so we have in the brain an anger line, the rage line. Mm -hmm. And the rage line runs on substance P. It's got it like it, that train on that track runs with this particular fuel. Whereas the panic grief line runs on cortisol mm. and the care line runs on oxytocin and endogenous opioids and mm -hmm. the and the fear line runs on uh glutamate and uh endogenous benzodiazepines they actually decrease instead of increasing the endogenous benzodiazepines do, but there's neurochemical effects. Mm. The seeking circuit, for example, when we're trying to get things done, this entire consideration of the instrumental brain, mm -hmm. as you mentioned, mm -hmm. dopamine. Mm -hmm. It's so rewarding. Mm -hmm. It really is. Yeah, we'd love to get things done. Yeah. And so um, I'm not sure I've named all the circuits, but there are... There's the play circuit. Play circuit. Endogenous and endogenous cannabinoids. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And endocannabinoids. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, the the disgust circuit. Well, the disgust circuit is one that I've added, which Panksepp refused. People asked him to add it before he died, and he refused. He did not think it was a real circuit. But there's been research since his death that mm. leads me to believe that it is a real circuit, and it's got its own facial expression and yep. changes the t t temperature of the torso. By two degrees Fahrenheit, it raises the internal body temperature. Yeah. Wow, apparently, I did not know that. That's so yeah, cool. Yeah, apparently some sort of response to try to deal with uh, contagion or uh, some kind of the intake of something, you know, uh, that might make us sick. And then the uh, sexuality circuit. And the sexuality circuit, yeah. the hormones of reproduction. Which we've, which we've renamed to Emergent Circuit. Yeah, Emergent yeah. Sexuality, Sexuality, yeah. Emergence. Yak Pongsep called it lust. Aha, <laughs> uh -huh. I did not know that actually. That's fascinating. <laughs> yes, I'm glad we Fewer changed letters. it. I'm glad that we changed it a little bit on our slides yeah. so that it would be much more work appropriate. Yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> um, I, I want to I dive into each of these circuits in the next episode okay. and really look at um, how they're influencing people at work. You know, I, I, and talk about each of the, and why are these circuits so important is because we are hardwired neurochemically to have our needs and feelings met. And so that is why we started this episode talking about empathy guesses, right, or feelings and needs guesses, because there's a neurochemical shift that occurs. And when we are able to speak resonantly, from that right hemisphere. And we're going to talk a little bit about, in this next episode, about something that you've developed called the IU language. Mm -hmm. And so working with both the resonant language and the IU language, which, which is subsumed in the resonant language, right? So it's one more type of speaking, and we're going to model that yeah. for, for, for all of you. Um, because we're hardwired for these needs to be met, when these needs are not met, what we find is disengagement. What we find is toxic workplace behavior. Yes. What we find is overwhelm. Yes. Burnout, depression, anxiety. So in our future episode, 
We will be covering all of these topics together, and I am so excited to continue the conversation, Sarah. That was Rajkumari Niyogi and Sarah Payton. Up next, How to Create Human-Centered Organizations, with Dino Anderson, Chief Culture Officer at Articulate. Visit us at podcast.ibelong.com for all the ways to watch and listen to our show. You've been listening to Then, Now, and Tomorrow, an I Belong original series produced by Flowship. Today's episode was executive produced by Rajkumari Niyogi, produced by Mike Giordani, edited by Ramiro Gava, mixed by Alex Roses, original music by Dario Valderrama, production assistance by Tiari Boutte and Pili Melendez. Thank you so much for tuning in. Thank you.